You're listening to the podcast collection from the OIAA. This is Terry Doherty. On today's episode, we have Gavin Phillips from Experim. We talked about uh, open source investigations. I really love this topic. It's uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, guys, just sit back, enjoy this podcast. There's lots to listen, lots to learn, uh, lots about metadata, stuff that you know we're not really doing or using, I don't think, to the uh, fullest ability. But enjoy this podcast. I think you'll love it. Thanks. Thank you very much for being on the podcast tonight. Uh, and just uh, an introduction, we've got Gavin Phillips. He's a regional manager with Xpera and the investigation side. Um, Gavin, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thanks. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. So, uh, Gavin, um, you know, I, I know quite a bit about Xpera and the SEM group of companies and stuff like that. But for people that don't know you guys, Give me a little bit about Xpera, if you've got some background or how long you've been with the company. Just tell me a little bit about you. Sure. So uh, Xpera is a private investigation and security services company. We've been around in one form or another since, um, I believe, our, our earliest sort of entity that's gone into the mergers that has made the current company has been around since the early 80s. Uh, I haven't been around quite that long. I started with what was King Reed and Associates back in 2003 and have stayed through a couple name changes and mergers. So I've been with the company 17 years. And during that time, I've been primarily a uh, research and inquiries investigator. So unlike a lot of investigators who get into our company or into the industry in general, I've never actually done surveillance. Uh, I've never been out pointing a camera out a window. I was hired uh, primarily to get behind the some websites that we were investigating back in 2003 that were heavily involved in satellite piracy. Uh, so that's where I got my start, was getting behind those websites, trying to figure out who was running them and how they connected to the real world. And uh, I, I like to say that I started my career in the same year that Facebook uh, launched to the general public in 2003. They're doing a bit better so far, but, you know, race isn't over. So... Uh, <laughs> That's great. I mean, that's yeah. uh, that's funny that you attribute it to the same time as Facebook starting up. And uh, I remember King Reed. I mean, uh, I dealt with Brian and the whole group and Paul McParlin, who's still with Xpera now. I mean, he was back there in the day as well. So I go back into the 90s, mid-90s with those guys. So uh, pretty funny. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah. So you've been around. I, I, I have. It's uh, It's been, you know, 17 years so far and uh, doing social media work pretty much the and OSI the entire time. So we didn't call it OSI back then. So I, I know what OSI is, but let's let's for those people, again, that don't know what uh, OSI is, let's uh, let's break that down, because I know the insurance industry, we use a ton of acronyms. And I actually heard one today for uh, the first time that I'd never never knew. Uh, it was just CO, and it just happened to be claim owner. I'd never even heard of that as an acronym, but uh, apparently it's a state farm thing or something. It goes back in the day from them. So, I mean, so what is OSI for those who don't sure. know? So, I mean, you make a really good point. Your industry and, and mine as well. There's a ton of acronyms, a ton of definitions, and every company tends to use their own. Uh, we use OSI, which stands for Open Source Intelligence. Uh, you may also hear it referred to as OSINT. And we use that as a definition for sort of all the information that is out there and generally publicly accessible. So stuff you don't need special certifications or special subscriptions to get to. Uh, It includes what uh, people think of as social media. So all the major uh, self-created content on the web, but also a lot of other information that's out there 
that can be obtained. Uh, a lot of it is on the internet, but it would also include things that can be gathered by calling government offices or uh, other sources of information. We still do pick up the phone every so often. And uh, every so often when you have to, you actually drive down to a government office and stand in line and uh, mosey up to the counter to fill out forms. It uh, all falls under that rubric of OSI. Okay, that's great because, you know, when people speak about OSI, I think they just think these days it's just sitting behind your desk and looking up, you know, Facebook or any of the other ones, right? Uh, Instagram, uh, there's so many, Twitter, that kind of stuff. And people actually forget that there is a face-to-face -face piece and you actually do need to go out sometimes and there's lots of stuff available to you that uh, I think people forget about it, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there is there is a real tendency, I think, to get tunnel vision in terms of, um, as you said, sometimes the social media or even just what you can get to with a keyboard and a monitor. And, um, you know, there's a lot of information out there that either isn't digitized yet because it's old or, it, you know, whoever working with it doesn't have the budget to put it all online. But if you know who to call or what doors to knock on, there can be a lot of interesting stuff out there. That's great. That's uh, that's good to know because I mean, um, as adjusters and investigators, and you know, and, and this is mostly for adjusters, and we've got lawyers that listen to the podcast and stuff, and people just for general knowledge as well listen. But for those people that don't really think about that stuff, I mean, that's good knowledge to know that you guys are still doing the door knocks and still going out and pulling data from uh, from microfiches or wherever you're getting it from, right? Or you know, back offices and stuff like that. So you're you're still doing the the foot, you know, walking on feet and pulling that stuff out, right? Absolutely. Uh, a lot of my work is done behind a computer, but uh, you never want to forget that there's a, you know, a whole big world out there. Some of it, uh, which hasn't made its way to the internet yet. Yeah. I heard one of, um, one of your guys say one time, you know, when you get onto Google, you, and there's 12 pages, make sure you check all 12 because you'll never know what you're <laughs> going to find on page 11. Right. It's, it's true. It's uh, something that I work hard to, uh, when I'm training new investigators, um, there's definitely a, a switch that has to be flipped between a sort of regular everyday internet user and an investigator. Um, that's an excellent example, and I've used it before, where a lot of people will run a search on Google, they check the first you know, two or three entries, and if it's not there, they either refine their search or try something new. Uh, we spend a lot of time kind of going through... Uh, the backwater of Google, all the broken links and the stuff that hasn't been updated for five or six years down in the, uh, you know, 20 to 30 to 40 page hits kind of things. Yeah, I'm, I'm always amazed what I find way back in the, in the dark parts of Google, like way yeah. back in those, those, you know, larger number pages, and you still find stuff. I mean, and it's amazing. And it was, that resonates me and has stuck with me since that person said it. And, uh, I think it was Desmond from your office one time that said it. So the Ottawa, Desmond from Ottawa, he had made that comment one time, like, you know, don't stop looking when you get to page three. I know it's going to be boring, but you'll never know what you find on page 11. No question. So um, so you guys use um, OSI a lot. I know you guys um, from my personal work that I do in the insurance industry, but tell me about the risks and the benefit of uh, OSI investigation. Kind of expand on that a little bit for us sure so uh the benefits are and and when i talk about benefits of osi investigation I'm often talking in comparison to other types of investigations i'm sure your audience is very familiar uh, many of them will use surveillance findings or assign surveillance in the past 
Uh, one thing that I point out is with OSI, uh, it's a little bit more scalable than surveillance. And what I mean by that is we can work with a much lower budget uh, and still bring home results, whereas surveillance, you're usually looking at starting at a certain amount. Uh, and you know that going in. Uh, as In terms of other benefits, you have a very low risk of discovery by subjects. If, it, if it's done well and you use the proper tools, very, very hard for OSI investigation to be detected. Uh, and the other big thing for me about OSI uh, is that it can give you information, not just on what somebody is posting today, but what they've posted in the past. And it can also give you a look at the future of your subject. If they're the kind of people who talk about future plans, uh, who schedule events, who you know organize their social life online, you can get a lot of information about what's going to happen. And OSI is one of the few types of investigations that can get you there. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought about that as well, right? You've got those people that are always planning and, hey, we're going away. This summer is going to be great, that kind of stuff. Yeah, you don't think about that, right? And You can set no. it up for your surveillance, right? Absolutely. I mean, I've been doing this for 17 years now, and uh, I am still amazed by the amount of personal detail and information that people put out there in the public sphere, just as they're chatting with a friend on Facebook. They don't go to Messenger. They just do it in the comments of a post. And they'll lay out their entire vacation plan sometimes. Yeah. Like when, where, how they're getting there, the whole bit. Like their personal diary. I, I've seen some stuff in it myself. It's like Dear Abby, and then it's just bleh of yeah. just information. You're, I'm like, why are you writing this? You know, but yeah, it's, you know, I guess it's good for us. So sometimes. <laughs> yeah. No question. So um, tell me about the tools. I know you guys use different search engines. I mean, you're not all typically using Google. I'm sure you guys use other stuff as well. Is there ones that you find are better than others, or is it just hit and miss and you've got to do them all? you kind of you got to go and scrape through all of them. Yeah, so it's very much case dependent. Uh, but I do, I do like to, when I'm talking to people about this type of thing or when I'm training new investigators, obviously we all know Google, I think. You know, you'd, you'd be hard pressed to find many people who have Bing or Yahoo as their main search engine these days. Uh, Google is the union station of the Internet. We all go there to get where we're going. We come back in at the end of the day. To, you know, it, it is very much a central hub. But there are other search engines out there. And because they all scour the Internet separately and index their material in different ways, sometimes information about a particular subject may not show up in Google or may not show up high in their ranking, whereas it will with other search engines. Uh, the other sort of tips I always give with search engines, uh, one is if you have a subject who's part of a very homogenous cultural enclave within Canada, or they are perhaps a recent immigrant and are going to be more comfortable in their uh, the, the language of their original country, you may want to seek out the search engine that's in that language. Um, most uh, countries and major languages have their own sort of search engine separate from Google. You can get a lot of information through there if you usually have to have Google Translate open in another window and kind of work back and forth. But there can be a lot of really good information there. Wow, that's uh, interesting. Again, something I would have never thought of. Yeah, it's uh, we, we sort of figured that out uh, as we've gone along and we've started compiling a list of different search engines for different areas of the world and for different languages. And it can be really helpful. Yeah, I mean, I, I originally, like, in, I, I think a perfect example of what you're talking about was WeChat, right? Originally, that was used mostly by the Asian population. I think you'd agree. And now it's everybody uses WeChat. 
It's a it's a really um, sought after program that people use. Yep. Yeah. It has become probably um, the on a international scale definitely the biggest competitor to sort of Facebook Messenger and some other types of programs. Uh, because of it, the popularity that started there and is now kind of going worldwide. Uh, TikTok, which is kind of the uh, <laughs> spirit successor to Vine, is another example, you know, started in China, but now is seeing heavy, heavy use, especially among the sort of teens and 20s demographics here in North America. Yeah, they're just good videos to watch, I think. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But it, it does it does lend to uh, that social media and that, you know, it's kind of like, it, it, and what it kind of, I think, started off was, was a lot of tweens and younger kids were doing it, and they were kind of emulating people's music videos and stuff. But I, I agree, it's now into the 20s, and it's it's really unique to see how it's it's exploded in the last six months, eight months. Absolutely. Um, one of the most fascinating things about social media for me is, uh, as I said, I you know started my career in 2003, right when Facebook was just getting going. Uh, for the early part of my career, there wasn't that much choice in social media, and pretty much everybody had a Facebook account. Um, now, the social media breaks down much more in terms of demographics, uh, likely users. Uh, if I'm looking for information on, say, a subject who's 25, I'm still going to check Facebook, but I'm not really counting on finding an account there. Or if I do, there's a very good chance that this is an account where they're going to be friends with all their elderly relatives. So there may not be a ton of information here. I have to look to Instagram or to Snapchat or elsewhere for um, perhaps a more honest accounting of their day-to-day -day life. And, and how do you – so I'm just giving you an example. I'm looking up for John Smith. John Smith's 25. Um, uh -huh. Now – Kind of give me the social media platforms that you would hit John Smith on. So would you would you would do Facebook, right? Because everybody, you know, like you said, everybody's on Facebook. Even if it's a dormant account, you're going to probably find it, you know, maybe when he was younger, right? What uh, absolutely. What else so, would you hit up? So for a John Smith, uh, because of the ubiquity of the name, it's going to be tricky right off the top. Uh, every investigation we do where we're looking at social media, we're likely going to hit Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as sort of the big three. Uh, I would say that actually for a John, with somebody with the name John Smith, I'm going to be starting by looking for some other identifiers to narrow it down. Ideally, in that case, I'm going to determine that they have a sibling or a best friend with a less common name. And what I'd probably do is go looking for their social media and then try to find the John Smiths that they're friends with. Because a straight-up cold search for a John Smith is going to keep me going for weeks, uh, just trolling through the possibilities. Yeah, uh, that's your average twenty-five-year-old. Uh, Instagram's probably going going to be my first stop. Okay. Uh, and the the thing I like about Instagram too is it's going to tell me a lot about their hobbies. Uh, if I jump on Instagram and it's full of discussion of say uh, video games and other sort of uh, you know superhero movies that kind of thing. I'm probably going to start looking at some of the discords or maybe Reddit for where they might be posting. Uh, if they're more a fan of uh, outdoors type activities, camping, fishing, that type of thing, I'm probably going to find more on Instagram. And at that point, I've got a better chance of finding stuff on Facebook because their sort of crowd for social activities may have a wider age spread. That's interesting. So you even go to Reddit as well. I was wondering if you were going to say Reddit in there. So Absolutely. 
Yeah, and again, Reddit's kind of like a little subgenre culture of its own thing where people post some, you know, uh, their comments and that kind of stuff. Um, what what are you finding typically on Reddit? You're finding more of the um, introverts or as opposed to the extroverts, you know, like the people out doing stuff, you're finding them more on the Instagram and Facebook as opposed to on Reddit? Yeah. I think in a general sense, that's probably pretty fair. Um, people who find their way to Reddit generally uh, usually hit one of two categories. Either they're uh, very internet savvy or, or sort of more so than the the kind of the baseline. Uh, and they found their way there. Or they're, they have a particular and usually pretty strong interest in a um, more of a niche hobby. Uh, something where it could be hard to find people in real life to converse with it about, maybe a particular TV show um, or something like that. But Reddit has, you know, subreddits, discussion groups for just about everything you can possibly think of. So if I know somebody's really into something that's either obscure or kind of narrow in scope, I'm definitely going to check out that subreddit to see if I can pick them up there. Now, uh, and I only use John Smith just because I didn't want to put a person's name out on there, and that sure. seems pretty easy. But even the person with, say, uh, a cultural name, uh, somebody with a, a name from, you know, um, not your standard name, right? They've uh, they've got uh, a name that's n- not very common. Um, do you find that people use nicknames, or are they using their name? What are you finding with that stuff? How are you how are you tracking these people down? So it, it, it's interesting. Generally speaking, a lot of people will use nicknames uh, on the internet. Um, generally speaking, there are nicknames that they've drawn from real life. And the reason for that is uh, for the majority of people, when they go out on the internet and onto social media, they're first and foremost looking to connect with the people they know in real life. So they want people who know them by their real name or sort of the nickname that they're known in their community. Uh it definitely gets harder when you have somebody who is only interested in online because they can pick a whole separate identity and off they go. Usually to make the link to them, you're looking for context clues. Uh, So you're checking that subreddit, looking for somebody who's commenting on certain things that you know would be of interest to the subject and hopefully giving some information about where they're located and what they're doing on a And then you try to corroborate against that. So it's basically you're you're again you're just doing some bit of a deep dive trying to track down some stuff then. Absolutely, yeah. It's it, it is very difficult when somebody divorces their online sort of identity entirely from their uh, their personal identity. It can be a, a little more difficult. Though my experience is a lot of people online who try to do that start with their own identity online and then try to transition it. And usually we can track that transition so we can see the evidence that shows that they've moved from being known as John Smith to being known as JS784 exclamation mark exclamation mark online. Yeah, there's a tracer there somewhere, right? You know? Okay. So, um, Let's talk about uh, scraper programs. Do you guys use these scraper programs? So we don't at this point. Um, this is uh, scraper programs are something, and I'm sure you've probably been marketed by these companies, and and a lot of your listeners will have been. And these are companies that uh, will indicate that they have an automated solution. You type in what you know about your subject, it goes out, scours social media for you, and then creates a nicely formatted report. Well, not, I've been told about them. I've never used yeah. one, but I've been told about them. 
So I, I should say that I think there's a lot of potential here with this technology and that in, you know, 10 years, maybe even as low as five, uh, there's going to be some valuable tools out there. I don't currently recommend their use and we don't use them either. And there's a few different reasons for that. The main one for me is that I've, I've yet to see one that can operate on the same sort of intuitive level as a human being. Uh, the example I always use is, and we'll go back to John Smith, 25 years old, let's say he lives in Toronto. If I have to start going through Facebook profiles for John Smith, um, my eyes as a human are much better at picking up age from pictures than any computer is going to be able to do. Uh, I'm also more likely to notice if somebody's wearing a Toronto Blue Jays hat in their picture, whereas these scrapers are really only able to work on a text basis. Uh, so they will miss a lot of the sort of contextual clues that a human investigator will pick up. The uh, other reason that I have sort of counseled my clients to be cautious about using them is just that many of those tools um, being used for these searches are based on servers outside of Canada. And as such, data on your claimant or your subject can be stored internationally, subject to collection and review under legislation such as the American Patriot Act. Uh, and you also can run into an issue where if you take it into court and the data is challenged or the evidence is challenged, you may be in a situation where you now have to bring a software engineer from Palo Alto, California, to validate the findings because you can't really say exactly how that piece of software found it. The other question I had regarding that was, and it's just my thought, is when you're talking about Facebook, I remember, and I don't know if it's still the, the same kind of thing, but when Facebook, you had to be at least 18 to sign on. So you had you know, teenagers that were below 18 that just moved their date back, right? So if you're using one of these scrapers, they're going to find somebody who says it's 25. You're getting all this information about this John Smith, when in fact this guy could be literally 17. Yeah, and that's actually, that's an excellent point. Um, automated computer programs aren't good at picking up lies. And as we know, lying on the internet is pretty common. Uh, you know? Yeah. It, whether by degree or to the extent that it's done, but certainly uh, having a computer program that can't judgments whether statements are true or not means that they are very reliant on the uh, validity of the information they're finding. As we know, the internet is full of uh, less than valid information. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking about that, how do you guys corroborate your OSI findings? Like, how yeah. do you how do you guys put that all together? Absolutely. And that, that's a major, um, corroboration is a major piece of what we do, because the reality is uh, with OSI investigation is oftentimes you're getting information uh, as it pertains to social media that your subject is putting forth or your claimant is putting forth. And that can be problematic sometimes, especially if you're trying to question the credibility of your subject or complainant or your, your claimant. Uh, in a in court or in arbitration, because you're basically saying we have all this great evidence that this person wasn't honest about something, and it comes from that person. There's really nothing to stop them, and this has happened before, for them to turn around and say, yeah, I posted all that stuff on social media, and I did it to make myself feel better, and none of it's true. And now you're kind of in a bad spot where you have to argue for the you know initial honesty of the person that you're trying to say has done something wrong. 
so what we spend a lot of time doing, and I hinted at it earlier, is looking for friends and relatives social media who will hopefully have pictures, posts, videos that will corroborate some of what we're finding directly from our subject and or, and or claimant. Uh, that goes a long way to showing that uh, what we're finding is is true and not something that was created uh, by the subject or uh, claimant for some reason. So the guy saying he was off skiing and you can't see his face and him going, no, no, that's not even me. But yet, yeah. you know, you're corroborating that through another photograph or you do see him on a friend's Facebook page or Instagram picture showing him actually at the ski resort. You know, how do you how do you say you weren't there when there's clearly a photograph of you there? Exactly. And I think, I mean, we all probably have that friend or relative who never puts their uh, their phone camera away, who never stops taking pictures and video and who just posts everything online. So it's um, we, we look for that person. Uh, they, they tend to be broadcasting everything they're doing, family are doing. And uh, that kind of person is just a goldmine to somebody in my line of work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you, you get that. That's you're going to get that just in your own friend group. You know that person, right? So that you know, that's a fair analysis of everybody in everybody's friend group. There's always that one person that just just doesn't know when to stop. Yeah. No. And and I mean, I have them in my family as well. And I've just learned that you know, when the camera comes out at the barbecue, or I see them with their phone in their hand, I just kind of duck away wherever I can. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about metadata. I mean, I've talked to Gre- or sorry, I've talked to Jeff about it before, but I mean, this is always good. It's a great refresher. Um, you guys have some really, really great uh, technology that you're using, um, and I love having you guys uh, look at my stuff. So let's talk about that. Uh, your your metadata and the information you guys get from that, right? Sure. So uh, when when I talk about metadata, all I'm really talking about is information that uh, pertains to other information. It's data about data. Uh, You mentioned images. Uh, One of the best things about metadata or the best types of metadata that we've made a lot of use of is um, the EXIF data that attaches to every, every image you take with a digital camera. And a lot of people don't realize that depending on how your digital camera, whether it be your phone or a standalone, depending on how it's set up, it can be uh, retaining a lot of information such as GPS coordinates as to where the image was taken, uh, the name of the device that it was taken on, and if you don't change your default on your iPhone, it's uh, often Gavin's iPhone, uh, the date it was taken, and all of this information can be really useful in locating somebody and also sometimes in sort of proving that they're being deceptive. Uh, we've had several matters where uh, people have sent in images uh, to their adjuster or to their insurance company that they claim are images of, you know, their car or their home before and after damage is taken. Uh, they say what dates the images were taken. And then when we go and look, we can find out that actually the dates are pretty far off on these images and it throws their whole story into disrepute. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I love that. And, and it, you know, it's, it's right there in the properties part of the, of the photo, but uh, what I've learned is you actually need somebody who's got a uh, forensics background or it's certified to do this. And I mean, that's why I, w- I spoke to Jeff about it because he's actually a qualified person that can stand up in court and say, this is how we obtained the data and provide a report to that. And I've used Jeff to obtain two reports so far like that. And I think it's amazing. You guys have really good 
a really good setup with that and video as well uh, when it was obtained gps coordinates all that stuff i mean it's pretty solid I, I like you guys for that as well and that's again that's pretty recent i'd say right like that where people are doing that yeah well the uh the, the software we have currently via xpera that jeff is the expert in uh that is a special type of software i believe as it stands we're the only non-police agency in canada uh who has a license for this and, and has the ability to work with it. Uh, but exit data has been around for a while and we've, I've certainly used it in the past. Um, one type of file that I run into a lot is actually finding an insured. Um, I'm sure I, this is no mystery to you or to your audience, but obviously sometimes you're going to court or you're going forward with a matter and you need to talk to your insured and they've moved two or three times and haven't updated their contact information. Uh, I've actually used EXIF data off of Instagram and Twitter accounts in the past to track down where they're living now based on the GPS coordinates in that in those images. Uh, so, so you can pull EXIF data off an Instagram photo? You generally can, yeah. If it was uploaded with the data and if you can get that um, photo down from Instagram in such a way that retains that data, you often can pull EXIF data off of it. Well, that's very interesting to know. And and what was the other? Um, you said Instagram and a Twitter and tw uh, Twitter. and Twitter. Wow. Yeah, their images sometimes retain their exit data. Facebook does not. Uh, the way that they upload images to their platform means any exit data is stripped away. Um, and I should say too that uh, these social media platforms change the way they handle your data all the time. Um, on a regular basis. So anything in terms of when I say Facebook doesn't have access data, but Twitter and Instagram does, that can be a very fluid situation. Uh, and it does seem to vary sporadically and widely. But uh, yeah, I've had luck in the past with both Twitter and Instagram pulling access data from images. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, that's something I didn't know. Again, I learn something new every day. So I appreciate that. That's really cool. Um, now, that what I was talking with, with uh, Jeff was, I mean, he was able to show me some images where they couldn't get a size on somebody, but they knew the size of the Coke can the person was holding in their hand. And by that, they can extrapolate what a Coke can is and then create the height of the person from the photo, which is yeah. unbelievable. And I know that it was used as a test image to show, but that's incredible that you guys can do that or you can take... Um, part of a photo of a license plate and it literally almost bends the photo so you can see the whole license plate like those things are just wonderful that's my favorite part of what jeff does is uh being able to kind of reorient on license plates or other points of interest um i don't do surveillance myself but i've done enough sort of field inquiries and spot checks to know that sometimes you just can't get that straight on clear shot of a license plate or some other information that's of interest uh, the ability to take the video back and give it to Jeff and have him, you know, uh, in effect, turn that image and read a play to his time is, is just invaluable. Well, I laugh because I remember the first time he showed it to me and I was like, okay, this is something just out like of a TV show, you know, where they solve the crime in 45 minutes. You know, everything just falls into place. But I was literally laughing because I was like, okay, this is like I'm on a TV show and somebody's just going to appear and go, huh. You know, it was just so funny that he was like, no, no, we can actually do this. This just isn't TV anymore. This actually does happen. So that's, it's, it's really funny that, you know, that it's a real thing. It's just not a TV thing anymore. 
Absolutely. No, it's, um, it, it really is amazing what that software can do. And especially in conjunction with the other investigative tools that we've developed over time, uh, we've we've been able to come up with some really good results for clients. Yeah, well, yeah, I I, I don't want to just all brag on Jeff here. It's just I, <laughs> I I deal with Jeff, but I deal with the expert on a regular basis, like I had said. But let's talk about like putting all your findings together and getting them ready for court. Like that's important, right? At the end of the day, it's all good to have this information. But what do you guys do to ensure that it's court ready and court certified? Or I, I don't know what even want to call it court certified, but you know, making sure your expert witnesses are prepped and ready to go. How, talk to us about that. Sure. So uh, obviously that's a, a major concern. The legal counsel on the other side of the issue um, we, we know for a fact that they will challenge evidence if they think that the evidence was gathered incorrectly or if there was an issue with the way it was maintained. Uh, in the past, that's primarily been in respect to surveillance evidence, but we are now entering a time where there's going to be more and more challenges to digital evidence. So uh, there, there's a few things that we do. One is we have some very specific software that creates an audit trail of what we're doing as we're going along. And the benefit here is that it's capturing everything that we're looking at and then assigning to it uh, a cryptographic hash, which the math is well over my head. But my understanding is that were we to go to court and was it and if it were challenged on the basis that this has been altered or that's not really what was there, the cryptographic hash allows the uh, would allow the courts uh, through you know, some help from an engineer to say, nope, that is exactly what they saw at the time. So that's a major component. And the other one is not unique to our industry, but uh, has had to evolve um, in conjunction with the digital evidence is just ec excellent, excellent note keeping. Uh, if you're going to take digital evidence into court, it's critical that you know who found it, who secured it, where it was found, um, when it was found and secured and all that information ideally is going to be part of your digital evidence it's going to be in that metadata we've discussed but if it's not you really have to make that effort to ensure that's recorded uh, as i've said to some of my investigators walking in with digital evidence where you don't know the url uh, or web address that it came from would be like walking in with surveillance video that didn't have a timestamp on it uh, it may look good, but it's probably not going to be particularly convincing. Or useful, right, at the end of the day. Exactly right. So um, how do people get in touch with you? I mean, Gavin, you're on the background or you do the background stuff, right? Um, so I'm assuming it just doesn't, people don't call you up. They call Xpera. So, um, or do they call you? Are you, a, you know, a conduit to the, to the investigators or how does that yep. work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that we work for very hard at Xpera is that ideally all of our investigators should be client-facing to some extent or able to talk with clients about files and what we can do next. Uh, so definitely clients will reach out to me directly or, or reach out to Xpera. Easiest way to get a hold of uh, me would be th probably through uh, either my normal email address or, or phone number. And I can provide those to you if you'd like to throw them up in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. So um, just just say them out to me. That'd be great as well. So we can have them, people, you know, if you're listening, just take a second, grab a pen, and write these down. Absolutely. So best phone number to reach me at is uh, the Southwest uh, Branch 1-800 number, and that is 1-800-253-1666. Yeah. 
And uh, then email is actually probably a faster way to reach me at times, um, given that I do spend a, a lot of time crouched behind my uh, monitor and keyboards. And that is Gavin, G-A-V-I-N, dot Phillips with two L's at Xpera.ca. And Xpera is X-P-E-R-A dot C-A. Great. So uh, would you come out and do seminars or meetings or just lunch and learns with uh, either a team or uh, an OIAA group or just even a company? Absolutely. I've done all of those. Uh, I've spoken in front of law firms, insurance companies, uh, as well as some OIAA uh, dinners as well as to uh, sort of tips and tricks for social media, uh, whether you're going to try to do it yourself or whether you're going to retain somebody like me, uh, some ideally some uh, helpful pointers as to how to get the most out of your investigation. Well, that's great, Gavin. I appreciate it. And I appreciate being on the podcast collection. I mean, like I said, uh, SCM's uh, a great sponsor and a great partner with the OIAA and the insurance industry. I mean, uh, I deal with you guys in every facet. Um, and I know a lot of our listeners do as well, whether, whether it be lawyers, adjusters, or, you know, just, different people within the industry. Um, and I enjoyed speaking with you today and I thank you very much for taking time out of your day to, to fill people in on OSI and, um, just giving people a little bit better understanding of what it is and what you guys can do. Absolutely. It's uh, great to be here. As I commented, I think before you, uh, turned on the audio, I, I really enjoy talking about this kind of thing. It's, always been interesting to me i'm I'm always happy to talk about it with uh, anyone who's interested thanks again guys for listening to this podcast i really enjoyed having gavin on the episode it's great if you guys want to learn more about open source investigation gavin left you his uh, contact information so reach out to him reach out to expera they have uh you know some zoom stuff they can do with you right now or you know some one-on-one calls whatever you want to set up but anyway in I hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did in learning about open source investigation. Um, We'll see you again soon, and we'll talk to you on the other side.